The following CME activity features content presented by leading experts. These excerpts are part of a certified educational activity titled EGFR Mutant NSCLC Evolving Treatment Paradigms and Game Changers for Current and Future Frontline Care. To access the entire activity and complete the post test, please go online to www.peercme.com forward slash AGU. A printable transcript, slides, and other features are also available. This activity is supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca. Good afternoon and uh, uh, welcome uh, to this uh, educational symposium entitled EGFR Mutant Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, Evolving Treatment Paradigms and Game Changers for Current and Future Frontline Care. Uh, my name is uh, Pasi Yanna from the uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, um, and I, I, I wanted to uh, also introduce my uh, uh, co-chairs, Dr. Jack West from the Swedish Cancer Institute and Dr. David Planchard from the Institute Gustave Roussy in Paris, France. I think uh, this uh, slide really uh, helps us summarize uh, what we have seen uh, over the course of the last several years, really about nine or 10 year period with single agent EGFR TKI therapy when used as frontline therapy in patients uh, with advanced EGFR mutant lung cancer. And you can see how the median PFS has essentially doubled uh, uh, throughout that time from the uh, IPASS trial of 9.5 months uh, to uh, uh, trials involving other agents, and then osimertinib at the very right with a PFS of 18.9 months. And these are some of the studies that we'll, we'll review today and, and will form the, our discussion uh, today. So I'm going to talk about the uh, first-line therapeutic options uh, and, and, and what's new. And there's uh, been some new data that has come out, both uh, in publication form as well as uh, that was presented at the uh, ASCO meeting a, a few months ago. And so we'll review that uh, uh, in, this, uh, in this section, and then we'll have a discussion uh, amongst the members uh, of, the, of the panel. So if we look at uh, some of the, the key trials uh, in the, uh, uh, what's happened over the last couple of years, uh, it's really, uh, the questions have really been more focused on which of the EGFR inhibitors may be better or better suited in the frontline setting. That graph that I showed you in the beginning shows when these agents uh, were first initially compared to chemotherapy and were all found to be superior to chemotherapy. But more recently, of course, the question is, uh, is there a choice amongst these different EGFR inhibitors uh, when used as first-line therapy? And the clinical trials have uh, began to address that. This one, uh, called LuxLung7, compared a fatinib uh, at 40 milligrams given daily, digifitinib uh, at uh, 250 milligrams given daily. It was a phase 2B trial for patients with advanced uh, non-small cell, uh, EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer, where the primary endpoint of this particular trial was progression-free survival. The primary outcome of this trial, uh, which was published just a few years ago, uh, uh, showed uh, that uh, although there was not a, a significant numerical difference in the uh, median PFS, uh, there was an improvement if you measured by hazard ratio of, uh, of um, fatinib over uh, gefitinib seen here. And you can see at the different uh, landmark time points, uh, for example, 18 months and 24 months, that there are differences uh, in, the, in the fraction of patients remaining on either one of these agents. Uh, if you look at response rates, uh, they're a little bit higher uh, for uh, fatinib, 70% uh, 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 response rate compared to 56% response rate for gefitinib. All of these responses are essentially partial responses, and you can see, again, stable disease and what the disease control rate is with these two different agents. 
And I think the important thing and what we know clinically, of course, is that uh, most, of the, most of the patients who develop a response, that response occurs quite early on in treatment, and the majority here uh, occurred within the first 16 weeks of treatment. And we all certainly know that clinically as well, uh, treating patients with uh, EGFR mutant lung cancer. However, when the uh, trial was analyzed further, there was no difference in overall survival. Uh, this is uh, similar for both groups, and you can see the uh, graphs uh, crisscross here. There are some differences uh, in toxicity uh, when you uh, start looking at these agents. And again, this is another factor as we think about our EGFR inhibitors or the choices of EGFR inhibitors. I think an important consideration is, are there differences in toxicity? And, and we'll get to that discussion uh, uh, later on. Uh, you can see here uh, what the adverse events leading to uh, discontinuation or dose reduction were, uh, certainly higher for fatinib compared to gefitinib. Uh, adverse events leading to discontinuation were uh, similar, shown here in red about 6.3% uh, in, in both cases, and dose reduction was 42% for fatinib and 2% uh, uh, for gifitinib. And you can see some of the differences in toxicities, uh, the EGFR-directed toxicities, things that we think about, diarrhea, rash, et cetera, were higher for fatinib. It's a covalent inhibitor. It's a more potent EGFR inhibitor because of that covalent inhibition, and hence it's a more potent inhibitor against mutant EGFR, but at the same time, it's a more potent inhibitor against wild-type EGFR as well. And you tend to see more EGFR-like toxicities with the covalent uh, uh, inhibitors. The second agent that uh, belongs into this sort of same category is dacomitinib. Uh, the clinical trial uh, that was uh, uh, published a, a year or so ago and updated this year, a similar design, although, although a lot uh, bigger clinical trial, a phase three clinical trial of about uh, 450 patients, also with EGFR immune lung cancer. And an important dis differential here, and again, this is an important point when we get to our discussion, is that uh, uh, patients were screened out for the presence of brain metastases. So you couldn't have any treated or untreated or asymptomatic brain metastases as an entry criterion uh, for this trial. And here, the primary endpoint was also progression-free survival. If you look at the progression-free survival, it's a much clearer separation than in the prior study here. 14.7 uh, months uh, for dacomitinib compared to 9.2 months uh, for gefitinib, uh, a highly statistically significant uh, uh, reading. Uh, and you can see that the curves separate uh, relatively early there. What was updated at ASCO this year uh, uh, was the overall survival. And here you do see a difference uh, in, uh, in overall survival. Uh, the, uh, uh, for 34 months versus 26 months uh, uh, for uh, uh, gefitinib. Uh, and if you look at, uh, for example, at specific time points, for example, at 30 months, 56% uh, of the patients treated on dacomitinib are alive compared to 45% uh, to 46% treated uh, uh, with gefitinib. Interestingly enough, again, uh, as I mentioned, you couldn't have had CNS metastases at the time of, um, uh, of study entry. Uh, there's some comparison there uh, looking at uh, uh, did uh, individuals develop CNS metastases as a cause of progression, and you can see some numerical differences. One patient did with dacomitinib, and 11 patients uh, uh, did with gefitinib. Uh, the response rates are relatively similar here, again, in the 70% ballpark for both agents. Uh, um, uh, most of these, again, are partial responses, um, and uh, durability of response is uh, uh, quite long for both. Again, the uh, side effect profile is a little bit different here, again, between the two different agents. Here, because of the covalent nature of dacomitinib, dacomitinib and afatinib are covalent inhibitors. Again, uh, you do s tend to see uh, more, uh, some more toxicities here, uh, and specifically, um, 
uh, significantly more uh, dose reductions. Uh, the vast majority of patients treated with dacomitinib, 66.5 or 67%, required dose reductions, where, whereas that was only 8% in patients treated with uh, uh, gefitinib. Permanent discontinuation due to study drug-related adverse events were 10% for dacomitinib, 7% for gefitinib. The, again, the EGFR-related toxicities, the grade 3 EGFR-related toxicities, diarrhea, paronychia, dermatitis, the uh, acneiform rash, again, higher as we would anticipate. Uh, you see slightly more uh, LFT abnormalities, ALT and AST increases with gefitinib, which is consistent uh, with uh, prior studies as well. Um, the uh, third head-to-head -head comparison uh, trial here is FLORA, now with osimertinib. Uh, osimertinib is also a covalent EGFR inhibitor, but it comes from a completely different structural class uh, compared to gefitinib, afatinib, or dacomitinib. Uh, it's, a, it's a mutant selective uh, uh, covalent inhibitor. It tends, it's more potent actually against the mutant form of EGFR than the wild type form of EGFR, whereas the other agents are more like equipotent against both. And this uh, uh, trial was published uh, earlier this year and presented last fall. Uh, again, about a 550 patient trial, randomized phase three trial, uh, patients uh, uh, with local advanced or metastatic non-small lung cancer. Here you could have had uh, stable uh, uh, CNS metastases. All of these trials really are for the common EGFR mutations, the exon 19 deletion and L858R, which in aggregate make up 85% of all EGFR mutations. So we don't really know how that would compare head to head with some of the rarer EGFR mutations um, uh, that, that can also be found. Primary endpoint was uh, progression-free survival. <clears throat> and you see here, uh, uh, again, a, a very significant difference in progression-free survival, a curve separate early. This trial uh, was running uh, around the world, and at the time when it was started, uh, erlotinib uh, um, or gefitinib wasn't approved in all countries, uh, and so there was a choice of getting gefitinib or erlotinib, uh, compared to um, osimertinib with an 18.9-month uh, uh, PFS, and again, a highly statistically significant p-value seen here. Overall survival, which is still uh, premature, uh, there's not enough events here uh, yet to know for sure, although it's encouraging to see that these graphs are starting to separate. We're eagerly awaiting the updated analysis of this, which likely won't happen until next year. Um, and even though there is a, a positive p-value here, it's not actually truly statistically, statistically significant for uh, statistical reasons that I don't actually completely understand. But, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the, the curves do separate, but uh, uh, they need to be, uh, we need more, uh, more time to figure out is this truly a, a, a truly a significant difference. Responses, um, also relatively similar, again, with similar trends as we're seeing here at around the 70% response rate. So here's 77% for osimertinib, 74% for standard of care EGFR inhibitor, disease control rates that are oftentimes in these studies in the 90% range, as you can see here as well. Safety comparisons here. Uh, again, you, you, because of the mutant selective nature of osimertinib, you would anticipate less on-target wild-type EGFR toxicity, which is rash and diarrhea. Uh, and, if, and you do see that rash or acne is quite uh, low here uh, um, compared to standard of care EGFR TKI. Again, the ALT, AST elevation, which I mentioned previously, we see with uh, drugs like gefitinib is also seen here as well. Uh, permanent discontinuations due to AEs, 13% uh, for osimertinib and 18% for standard of care EGFR TKIs. Dose reductions similar uh, for both agents. 
And here this question asked, does the addition of chemotherapy to gefitinib uh, change uh, the outcome of patients who are getting uh, uh, compared to gefitinib alone? Again, a similar uh, uh, inclusion criteria, uh, individuals with advanced EGFR mutant lung cancer uh, with a good performance status. This trial conducted in Japan. And here, uh, again, a, a very significant difference. Um, again, curves separate early. Uh, median PFS with gefitinib about 12 months. With the combination, uh, the first time we're cracking at a 20, so 20.9 months. Again, a highly significant uh, difference here. Uh, if we look at the responses, um, maybe a little bit higher in the, in, in the chemotherapy than compared to gefitinib, but not a, not a significant difference. Um, uh, again, mostly partial responses, uh, very few complete responses that we see here. I think the other remarkable thing about this trial that was presented at ASCO is the overall survival difference uh, with the combination. Here the curves do separate out uh, quite early. Here this is a real statistically significant p-value with a 52.2 months in the combination and 38 months for gefitinib. Really a, a, a quite a, a significant 14-month uh, uh, improvement in, in overall survival and, and, and very intriguing. If you look at toxicities, um, there was nothing really new here about toxicities. We're really just getting the uh, added toxicities of chemotherapy and gefitinib in the combination arm uh, compared to the gefitinib toxicities alone. So things that you would expect when you give individuals chemotherapy on top of an EGFR inhibitor would be a higher incidence of neutropenia, anemia, uh, thrombocytopenia, et cetera, which we see here. But there wasn't sort of a new set of toxicities that we hadn't seen before uh, in, this, uh, uh, in this population. And finally, we wanted to summarize um, some of the bevacizumab-based trials. Uh, this, too, is a, is, a, is a combination approach that uh, had, had gained a lot of attention, uh, primarily because of the trial on the left, the uh, Japanese trial, initially demonstrating that when you add bevacizumab to erlotinib, you improve uh, PFS from 9.0 months to 16.0 months. This was a randomized phase two trial. At ASCO, uh, this uh, was updated uh, and uh, uh, with the overall survival, which was actually uh, similar in both arms. There was also a randomized phase three, three trial uh, that had begun and the P, only the PFS information was available. Uh, it was statistically significant, again, 13.3 months for a lot alone and 16.9 months uh, for the combination. Similar response rates. Of course, you do see uh, uh, some toxicity differences when you add uh, bevacizumab to a lot, and if there are toxicities, uh, things like proteinuria, uh, hypercoagulability, uh, et cetera, that can sometimes come from uh, uh, bevacizumab. And, and again, we saw the additive effects of those independent toxicities in the combination arm, not uh, necessarily any new toxicities. Okay, so... Um, we're going to move on to the uh, panel discussion part, and I, I will uh, uh, start asking questions from my uh, uh, colleagues here. Maybe start with Jack. What do, what do you think are the key considerations for selection of first-line therapy, or, or maybe how do you approach that when you see a patient in the clinic? Well, I think nowadays it's increasingly important to think about the entire treatment course for a patient that isn't just limited to the first-line setting, but actually... Uh, the the range of treatments from first line to everything that follows. And that's where I think you know, it, we are going to be talking more about what is left for later. And uh, one thing that was interesting about the NEJ-009 trial and a potential explanation for why there was actually a, a, a survival difference uh, is that more patients got, everyone who started with the chemo and... Uh, immunotherapy got that treatment versus uh, 
a 25% attrition for the patients who started with gefitinib and then progressed and tended to have a worse performance status and more diffuse disease. And so I, I think we do need to, to consider not just PFS at this point, but look more at the opportunities or think about the opportunities that follow. Uh, that said, I think that osmertinib with that PFS benefit uh, that's really quite profound at about 19 months, but also something that we're going to be talking more about, and that is CNS control, is a big issue. Uh, and so I, I put those together. And also tolerability. We're going to, we, we've already alluded to some of these issues, but I think that tolerability is a really big concern when you're talking about a longitudinal therapy people are going to be on, we hope, for a year or years and not. Uh, just a, a three or four month course, and that's the end of it. This is uh, so. I think that though we focus a lot on grade three and higher toxicities, even grade two diarrhea or significant rash that goes on and on are a big issue. So altogether, I'm overall survival is a huge issue, but you need to factor in CNS control and uh, and tolerability. For me, at this point, uh, osimertinib is my go-to first line. David? I think you, I'm, I'm agree with Jack, and so that means it's becoming more and more complex. So for me, we can look on different point of view. The first thing, we can look on the overall response rate. I don't think uh, there is any differences between the different components because we can reach 70 up to 80%, so they all work. The second thing, and probably the most important, is probably the PFS. This is as we might compare head-to-head -head comparison between the different uh, generations, uh, we can see that probably the second generation might bring uh, a benefit in comparison to the first generation, uh, but it's not probably the optimal benefit we might expect. Uh, and if we look uh, particularly for the PFS uh, from the LuxLung 7 uh, trial, you can see that the two curves uh, within the first 12 weeks are, are completely parallel and do not seem to bring a benefit to use afatinib in comparison to gefetinib. Uh, and when you look, uh, same for the Archer trial, 1050 uh, uh, dacomatinib in comparison to gefetinib, you can see that within the first six months, uh, you do not have any higher benefit uh, with dacomatinib in comparison to gefetinib. And after, if we move with the third generation with osimertinib, it's quite impressive for me because on the PFS, uh, you have this early separation of the curves and you keep uh, the magnitude of benefit uh, in favor of osimertinib in comparison to gefetinib. So I think this is something uh, probably important to take in account. Uh, and finally, uh, you will push further the PFS uh, up to 19 months uh, with osimertinib in comparison to 14 months uh, with dacomatinib. So the magnitude of benefit seems to be higher. It's something nice. Uh, does it bring a benefit uh, in overall survival? We can say yes, potentially, with dacomatinib. Uh, but again, I I'm quite uh, concerned about dacomatinib with overall survival. Uh, if you look at the curves, uh, they cross. Uh, there is two points for which they cross. Uh, yeah. Firstly, at 12 months, and secondly, at, at 36 months. So that means within the first uh, 12 months, uh, it seems uh, that you might do better with uh, the first generation th than with dacomatinib. Is it because uh, you have a higher toxicity that you need to stop the treatment, you have a discontinuation of the treatment, uh, 
dose reduction and for which uh, you might do better with gefetinib within this period. And that's why I'm not completely confident for this drug. Uh, and we need to weigh the overall survival of osimertinib. But nowadays, when we see the shape of the curves, there is also an early separation, which is quite impressive. So that's why for me, I'm quite agree. Uh, I'm quite confident that it will be positive for osimertinib. Uh, and finally, for the patient, and we will have this discussion, we need to have the good tolerability to be able to continue the drug and not to have any discontinuation of the drug. And this is probably something major we can observe with osimertinib. Dose reduction is only 5%. If you see with afatinib, it's 44% dose reduction, 66% with dacomatinib. So this is an issue. This is an issue for the patient, and this is an issue for the oncologist. If you need to see the patient every week because he called you because they have toxicity, you need to make adaptation is a lot of stress for everybody and probably to need to stop the treatment due to the toxicity is an issue and just remind that when we are talking about toxicity a toxicity grade 2 diarrhea it's between four up to six tools every day if you have six tools every day i think it's a nightmare it's only a grade 2 toxicity and for the grade 3 and 4 toxicity you imagine the nightmare for the patient uh, and it can reach uh, 15% for the dacomatinib and afatinib. So for me, it's really an issue for this type of compound. We need probably to have a better adaptation of the dose. And you don't observe this uh, with the osimertinib. And the last things, uh, and we'll have also this discussion, uh, is the efficiency on the brain meds. It's efficiency patient with brain meds, but also to try to prevent uh, the evolution of brain meds. And this is something completely this is major for me, uh, because when the patient has brain meds, uh, it's a nightmare. He knows he has brain meds. He will have CT scan evaluation every two weeks. Uh, do I have a brain progression? I cannot drive anymore my car, and he thinks. Uh, so the prevention of the brain meds, this is the same issue for the Hulk population. I think this is something major. Try to avoid to have any brain meds, any neurological symptoms. So that's why it's something also major we should take in account uh, when we choose how to start and for which we treatment start uh, for this population who are OGFR-mutated. So I totally agree with you in terms of the toxicities that we don't often think about or report the grade three or four toxicities, but the grade two toxicities, which uh, if you have them for 16 or 18 months, is the quality of life is, is not fantastic. And I think we need to, you know, we need to keep that in mind, and that's important for our patients. So let me ask you a, a, a European-centric question. You know, osimertinib is approved in the United States. It's not approved everywhere in Europe or reimbursed uh, everywhere in Europe. And so uh, based on what you saw today, the NEGM and the erlotinib bevacizumab, you see a new EGFR mutant patient tomorrow. Does that data... Uh, sway you one way or another to do more than just a single-agent EGFR-TKI, or do you continue a single-agent EGFR-TKI as the first-line therapy? I would say with the first line, it's clear, it's evident. Uh, what do you have access uh, and which drug the patient have access? Uh, is it a refound drug or not refound? So it will be an issue for the osimertinib. Otherwise, probably ratio benefit might be the best. Uh, if you well, let's say you can't get off awesome If you don't have access to the drug, uh, you will try to push the PFS. Uh, and until now, I think erlotinib and bevacizumab was really impressive. Because when you can reach around 16 months PFS uh, in comparison to 10 months just to have the bevacizumab with erlotinib, uh, this is quite nice. Uh, it was just disappointing to see that the phase 2 trial was negative in the overall survival. 
but it was a phase two trial. It was not powered and designed for the overall survival. So we need to weigh the phase three trial, which is ongoing in the Japanese population. And we see we have exactly the same magnitude of benefit in terms of PFS in the phase three trial that have been presented at ASCO. It also reached 16 months. So I'm quite confident to have anti-angiogenic uh, and adiophatic eye both works well together. Does it bring a benefit in overall survival? This is probably the last step uh, to use this type of combination in first line. And lastly, combination with chemotherapy and adiophatic eye, it was probably the most impressive trial that was presented at ASCO meeting because until now, chemotherapy adiophatic eye do not work, and particularly at resistance. Just remind the impressed trial, if you had chemotherapy beyond progression with gefetinib, the impressed trial is completely negative, particularly in patients who are T7 and TM positive, you might be detrimental to hard chemotherapy with gefetinib. So that's why uh, we try to forget uh, chemotherapy, but finally, chemotherapy is still important and platinum salt. So I'm agree, if I don't have access to bevacizumab, if I don't have access to osimertinib, probably a standard might be gefetinib and chemotherapy. Uh, in terms of magnitude of benefit, 20 months median PFS, overall survival, really impressive, but in a Japanese population, and Japanese population is quite particular. I'm not sure we might reach this overall survival, but we have the toxicity of chemotherapy. So this is an issue. Jack, your thoughts, obviously, Osimertin have approved and reimbursed in the US, so maybe less of an issue, but tackle those two, two areas. But I do think it's, uh, it's a great point that 21 months is, is amazing, and even if it's not 52 months outside of Japan, it was a 14-month difference. I, I really got to say hats off, and that's really impressive. Uh, you know, we didn't take long to extrapolate the Jafitnib experience to the rest of the world when it came from Japan. And I think we should recognize that uh, we shouldn't have a different standard. The idea is that when you do molecular testing, you really control for a lot of that. Even if it's not the overall survival, there are differences consistently, and they're better in, in Japan or other parts of Asia. But I, I think that's really compelling. I look forward to trials of chemotherapy and osimertinib. But I would say if there was a reason maybe not to do osimertinib or you didn't have access to it, uh, I, I think that would be a very strong choice, either jafitinib or uh, erlotinib. Yeah, you, you have the toxicity of chemo, but these patients are going to, we hope, get the opportunity for chemotherapy later. They're benefiting uh, when they do, and they may get more of a benefit up front, you know, hitting it in two directions. I mean, we're, we also saw in different sessions at ASCO that chemo combined with immunotherapy gave big benefits. And even though the, the hope was that we could move away from chemo as decades old as it is, but uh, these combinations with chemo haven't gone away and they, they may be a good strategy uh, for the best outcomes overall. So I think it's, uh, it is something that we should pay more attention to replicate outside of Japan, but I think the data are very strong. Yeah. And I, and I would say that the, um, uh, bevacizumab, of course, it, with erlotinib is actually approved in the EU. It's not approved in the U.S., and I would in, feel free to comment on that. My own opinion is that in the U.S., that strategy, despite the even in the early PFS being uh, uh, significant, really wasn't adapted in the U.S. too much. Not particularly. I mean, I, I used it some uh, based on the, the big PFS difference, but I'd say that 
the absence of an overall survival, uh, admittedly in just one phase two trial, but the same trial that was so intriguing uh, in terms of PFS benefit, uh, it dampened my enthusiasm to see everyone come out the same at the end of it. But finally, it was not surprising to do not observe any benefit in overall survival. All the trial until now, all the drugs have been approved uh, only with a benefit in terms of PFS. Uh, not significantly differences between overall survival. There is so many confounding factors. So I, what I, w uh, I would be really prudent. So just the fact to have this magnitude of benefit in terms of PFS uh, might be enough probably to try uh, to use this type of combination. And the argument, of course, has always been that, you know, if you start on chemotherapy will cross over and that's why you don't see that difference. But, but maybe, maybe with our uh, newer generation agents, uh, since they're so much better, we'll start to see these differences and we'll wait for the osimertinib uh, uh, data to come, hopefully again next year or, or sometime later. Okay, so um, for the next part of this, uh, we're gonna uh, tackle two topics, which were sort of the rela related or part of that question. Is, is really, number one, is uh, uh, presence of CNS metastases, and should that change our approach? And as you saw from my presentation, uh, one of the trials excluded patients with any CNS metastases, history or otherwise. Uh, some of the other trials allow asymptomatic, treated or untreated brain metastases. And then the other uh, piece is this plan B question. Question, what do you do after progression of frontline EGFR-TKI, and how important is that knowledge uh, for you uh, as to what to do um, uh, in choosing that first-line therapy. So uh, I'm going to uh, turn this over uh, to Jack, who will uh, talk us through the CNS metastases part. Great. So CNS metastases are really a common, significant issue, and frankly, I think of it as uh, an issue where patients have CNS metastases or they're at risk for CNS metastases in this setting. Uh, but we have relatively limited data on this. Uh, this is the Lux Lung 3 trial of a fatinib versus platinum doublet chemotherapy in a global study. And uh, this is not speaking to CNS progression, but uh, progression-free survival overall. And uh, this is just looking at patients who did or did not have brain metastases in the study and demonstrating that a fatinib demonstrated a uh, very convincing benefit for PFS in, in the patients with brain metastases as well as those without brain metastases. The same can be said uh, for the Lux Lung 6 trial, uh, really a very similar design, different chemo of cisplatin gemcitabine versus a fatinib instead of uh, cisplatin and pemetrexid versus a fatinib. This was done uh, in Asia, and again, this is looking at uh, overall PFS and demonstrates a significant uh, benefit for, uh, in terms of uh, a fatinib being superior, uh, that was definitely there without brain metastases, but a very similar trend in patients with brain metastases. We just got a report on the FLORA study, particularly looking at CNS progression. This came out in JCO just in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, and this is an analysis that shows that in patients uh, who were randomized again to osimertinib versus first generation, uh, EGFR-TKI, that is erlotinib or gefitinib, uh, in addition to the difference in uh, overall PFS, CNS 
progression-free survival is significantly better in uh, the patients who received osimertinib. This is in a subset of patients uh, who uh, there were 200 out of the 556 in the overall trial who had a baseline uh, brain MRI uh, to make them eligible for this analysis. And uh, looking at it in a different way, this is looking at the cumulative incidence of uh, CNS progression. And you can see in the solid and more bold lines, the uh, progression rate being uh, superior with uh, osimertinib over uh, gefitinib or erlotinib. And the hatched lines are for overall uh, non-CNS progression, really showing similar trends, but higher rates of non-CNS progression. But clear in this head-to-head -head comparison of one uh, EGFR TKI versus another that, uh, that osimertinib led to and was associated with greater CNS control. This is looking at uh, the responses in the patients who had measurable CNS lesions, seeing that you did see responses potentially in uh, patients who received either first-generation EGFR inhibitors or osimertinib, but clearly uh, the only patients who had complete responses were recipients of osimertinib, and uh, there were more and uh, deeper responses with uh, osimertinib. So I think that uh, the next question is, how much or how little does CNS uh, disease, brain metastases, influence things? We historically had uh, sent patients for radiation if we saw evidence of brain metastases, and that was certainly in those with larger or symptomatic disease. But we also commonly, when we routinely do brain imaging, will find asymptomatic subcentimeter lesions. And so uh, I'll turn to you, Posse, what's your approach for uh, patients nowadays, if we have agents that can have good CNS activity, uh, do you uh, send patients for primary radiation or are you comfortable treating uh, de novo with systemic therapy and then following that? I think one of the things that, um, um, you know, we're seeing uh, also today that we didn't see several years ago is that because of our systemic therapies, not just EGFR inhibitors, but others are more effective, patients with advanced lung cancer are living longer, which is a wonderful thing. But at that same time, you, we are seeing more things like long-term side effects for therapies like whole brain radiation, uh, which, which can be quite significant. And I think having a pharmacologic option to treat brain metastases um, is, is, is a wonderful alternative. And so certainly in somebody who um, uh, you know, and it has uh, asymptomatic brain metastases, I feel very comfortable treating them with, with, uh, uh, with osimertinib. Um, I think it's something that we've come to expect from our next generation uh, targeted therapies that they're not only effective in the systemic disease, but they also cross the blood-brain barrier uh, because we need more ways of treating brain metastases. I think that's a, a great point, though, that uh, we now have patients living so long with their disease that we are seeing some of the consequences of therapy that we never had before because patients routinely died in a year or two. And now we have the, the fortunate situation of patients living often for years with these, which gives a lot more of an opportunity for late consequences, even for uh, 
stereotactic approach. So I, I think many of us are becoming increasingly judicious. David, what's your approach here? Uh, I'm, I'm agreeing. We, we try to avoid any whole brain irradiation as we do for the Hulk population, for example, because clearly we see the toxicity for this patient because they are living for years and years. Uh, and it's quite nice. Uh, I would say for the brain meds, it's depending also if you look at it or not. Uh, because it was a recommendation until now, not if the patient is asymptomatic, do not perform systematically a brain MRI, a CT scan. I'm not completely agree with this because I think nowadays in the different options, we might choose according if the patient have brain meds or no brain meds. And so that's why I think we should perform a brain imaging to know if the patient have brain meds or not, and probably we might have different options in the treatment. And the second thing, we need to try to avoid the brain development, and that's why this is also probably for me the most important thing again, is to have drugs that will try to block the brain evolution. And that's why osimertinib again, is something quite strong for me. And this is a strong signal when we see the incidence of brain meds in the FLORA trial. So I mean, if you look at one year, you have 8% in the osimertinib harm and 25% in the standard of care. So that means it's a strong message. One of the limitations, and we should keep in mind in the FLORA trial, it was not mandatory to perform at baseline a brain imaging. So probably it's underestimate. It's a small number of patients that have been included in the FLORA trial. So that we should right. keep in that, mind that, this, this point said, also. Less than half of the patients yes. in the study. We, we should keep in mind also. But when we see the response, the, the brain response, 91% with osimertinib is quite amazing. So that's mean, I, I think we do better than performing any brain irradiation, stereotaxic irradiation, well brain irradiation, when you have 91% brain response with a specific compound. So that's why it's a strong message. And when we see the incidence of brain meds in a general population, either at diagnostic or during the evolution of the disease, it should be around 50% that will develop or have at baseline a brain metastasis. So that's why I think it's a major part. And again, same thing as for the Hulk population. Maybe go back to the cumulative incidence slide. I think that that's really telling, the cumulative incidence. This one really over time. Uh, that there are differences, because that's, that's right. you know, this idea that you're not just, you're, you're these are people who didn't have brain metastases, right. but who developed brain metastases, so, so that's the just, other component again, of this. It's not just the disease you have, but the disease you're at risk for. Yes. And so do you, either or both of you, do surveillance in patients who don't have neurologic symptoms over the course of following these patients? I would say for my part, systematically, yes, sir. Because particularly, we know at the moment they might develop brain meds. Uh, and I want to know if they develop brain meds, particularly because uh, I might impact the choice of the treatment. Uh, if they receive a drug with not a major efficiency on the brain med, if I already started with erlotinib or gefetinib, I might be informed if there is a brain evolution because probably I will try to push uh, to receive osimertinib, or otherwise, I, I will try uh, to perform a stereotaxic irradiation. So I will try to avoid, again, any whole brain irradiation. So that's why I want to know if there is a small brain disease. In this case, how to have the best adaptation of my treatment. So I follow at least every uh, eight weeks, uh, or between two to, uh, to three months, uh, with a brain imaging. Um, some, perhaps not as systematically as, uh, as, as what David is talking about, but yeah. Okay, now what about, we were talking about giving uh, 
systemic therapy as a first approach for patients with smaller asymptomatic lesions. Uh, what about patients with uh, more than one centimeter or even larger than that or symptomatic disease? Do you uh, feel comfortable enough with trying osimertinib or some other approach up front, or is this a setting in which you'd cross over to, to favor uh, radiation? I, I, I think we're in a little bit of a data-free zone here, I would say. Um, I, I tend to, you know, symptomatic, it would, I think, depend on where is the brain lesion, how big is it, is it about to block off CSF drainage or other things? Is this a situation where I need to reach for my surgical colleagues for, you know, decompression? Uh, so I think, I think the devil's in the details here, but I think it's also an area where we really don't have a lot of information. I, I would be much more, uh, I think I would be slightly less comfortable in the symptomatic situation, especially if it was a scenario where I was worried that if I didn't get that very quick response, uh, that the patient would run into trouble. I don't know what you think. You're right. The only things are when you have a specific drug like osimertinib or other drug, you can start the day you see the patient with the symptoms. So generally, the time to have the appointment if you want to perform any surgery or any brain irradiation, you might be able to make your evaluation in a few days. So generally, this is what we try to do. You start immediately the treatment, and when it works, generally, you see the patient after two, three days, five days, they feel better. And so in this case, you might avoid to go with some much more aggressive uh, things like like uh, neurosurgery or, or stereotaxic irradiation, for which generally you have you need some time to plan the treatment. Uh, so that's why for me I'm quite confident. And again, when you see 91% response rate with osimertinib on brain meds, uh, it works on symptomatic and asymptomatic brain meds. Uh, so you can start some corticosteroid, you start the treatment, uh, and you see the generally a quick response, uh, clinical response. Uh. Great. So at this point. We're moving to the question that many of us are thinking, uh, with so many options for people, really a question of how do we sequence? Do you want to uh, front load treatments? And what do we want to reserve for later? And so uh, David has presented some of this important work in other settings, and it's great that he's doing that here. Thank you, Jack. Uh, so this is probably one of the most challenging things, uh, what to do beyond the first uh, line of treatment. Do we have any plumbation? I'm not sure we have a plan B in all situations, but anyway, uh, let's try to look uh, how we can make discussion. Uh, so when we see a patient, uh, we might see, think about sequence of treatment. Uh, so that means currently we start with the first or second generation adjophytic eye. Uh, so we, you will have a PFS between 10, I would say, up to 14 months. Uh, and after the first things we are looking at, uh, is the T790M resistance or not? Uh, we know that around 50% of the patients that receive a first or second generation might develop this mutation of resistance. Uh, and the standard of care, I think we are all agree nowadays, is osimertinib, for which uh, you will have a magnitude of benefit in around 10 months. Uh, but I would say it's only 50% of the population. Uh, so that means in the ideal scenario, yes, patient must and should have the T790M positivity to receive osimertinib. But unfortunately, in around 50%, the patient will not have the T790M positivity, or you will not be able to prove that the patient is T790M positive. So in this case, you will start a chemotherapy, and in this case, it's not the same magnitude of benefit. 
And so that's why this is something important, because we can't think uh, about sequence of the treatment, uh, but we never know uh, what will be the sequence for each patient. Uh, do the patient will have the T7M positivity or not? We never know when we start a treatment. And I think this is something uh, quite major to keep in mind. It's probably not the same discussion when we discuss for the HALC population, uh, because whatever the HALC inhibitor, second generation, third generation, you are never obliged to demonstrate any specific mutation of resistance. So that means you can start with chrysotinib for all the patients, and most of the patients will have access to the second generation and third generation because you are not obliged to prove a specific mutation of resistance. So it's something different for the EGFR population. And lastly, we know that not all the patients will reach a second line of treatment. In all the phase three trial, between 20 to 30% of the patients never had any second line of treatment. And so that's why nowadays the deal it's to give the best drug upfront to be sure that 100% of the patient uh, receive the treatment. And finally, I will show you some interesting data with osimertinib and also standard of care, particularly about the PFS2. We know the PFS, it's one line of treatment, but nowadays the most important uh, is at least for the patient to receive two lines of treatment. And so this is what we call, uh, and you will see more and more PFS2. We have the PFS2 for the different uh, targeted therapy, but we have also for the immune treatment. So that means uh, when the patient starts the first line of treatment, up uh, when it progress after the second line of treatment. Uh, and so we keep, uh, and so that means it includes a sequence of treatment. Uh, is it good to keep a sequence of treatment? Potentially, yes. Uh, if you look at the LuxLung 7, uh, so patient uh, that received gefetinib or afatinib, uh, and if they receive, and if they were able to receive a third generation, you can see the magnitude of overall survival is quite impressive. Around 50 months for the gefetinib, it was not reached for the afatinib. So if the scenario is optimal, if the scenario is good, it's fine. You can reach around 50 months overall survival with the third generation or second generation followed by osimertinib. But as you can look, it was only around 20% of the population that, have, that had access to a third generation beyond the first line of treatment. So it's not 100% of the patient that go in this ideal scenario. So what have been done in the FLORA trial, because finally we potentially can look at the sequence, it was to look firstly to the PFS2. So that means you look two sequences of treatment either in the osimertinib harm or either in the standard of care harm. I will show you what was uh, the second line of treatment in each arm. And the second thing uh, we looked uh, was the time to discontinuation to any adjephertic eye. So that means patients do not receive any other, any other treatment out of adjephertic eye. So that means we are just looking sequence of treatment with an adjephertic eye. What was the subsequent treatment? You can look in the osimertinib harm on the left. You can see in blue, 51% of the patients were still on treatment with osimertinib. It was only 23% of the patients in the standard of care harm. If the patient progress, 
they receive subsequent treatment. You can see in 29% in the osimertinib arm on the left, uh, they receive a subsequent treatment, uh, and it was mainly platinum-based chemotherapy in 56%. So that means most of the patients that progress beyond osimertinib receive a platinum salt. Uh, I would say it might be the uh, classical sequence beyond osimertinib. At opposite, in the sequence uh, with the standard of care harm, you can see that 46% of the patients receive a further line of treatment, uh, and if they were T7ITM positive, they receive osimertinib. It was the case in 43% of the population. So you can see this is what we might expect. That means if you start with gefitinib or erlotinib, between 40 to 50% patient might be T7ITM positive and receive osimertinib. So it was the case in the FLORA trial. What about the result? In terms of discontinuation of any adjuvertic eye, so you might imagine osimertinib and in the other arm, gefetinib, erlotinib, followed by osimertinib. You can see we keep the magnitude of benefit in favor of osimertinib in comparison to the standard of care arm. So it's quite promising. What about PFS2? So that means two lines of treatment. Uh, you can see on the left, uh, PFS2, we keep the magnitude of benefit uh, in favor of osimertinib in comparison to the standard of care. In the standard of care, you can see that the median PFS2 was 20 months. It should be what we might expect if the patient received erlotinib, gefetinib around 10 months median PFS. If patient receive osimertinib in second line, around 10 months. So finally, if we want to be simple, 10 months plus 10 months, it's around 20 months. This is what has been observed. And despite this, uh, we still have uh, a benefit in favor of osimertinib. So it's really promising to tell us uh, that when you start with osimertinib, you still do better than perform a sequence of treatment. Uh, and so it's still promising to tell us uh, that finally overall survival might be still positive in favor with osimertinib in first line. And you know the Impower 150 with atezolizumab, which compare, so three different harm, but the most interesting was the comparison between harm B and harm C. Harm B, patient receive chemotherapy, carboplatin, paclitaxel, plus bevacizumab, plus atezolizumab. And it was compared to carboplatin, paclitaxel, and bevacizumab. The trial is positive in terms of survival, in favor of the association with four drugs, so might be toxic, but anyway, it's positive in the whole population. But the most interesting things, uh, if you look in the sub-cohort adjuvermutated uh, or halt translocated population, uh, we keep a benefit in terms of overall survival, uh, as you can see with hazard ratio 0.54 in favor of chemotherapy, bevacizumab, and atezolizumab. So that means this association, uh, if it's the fact to have bevacizumab that might be important in the Ejeffer population, we know that chemotherapy is still important in the Ejeffer mutated population, but also it seems to bring a benefit to have atezolizumab. So that means beyond osimertinib, we might think uh, to this type of association, uh, probably we need to have further data in this subpopulation, but I would say this is the first promising data with immune treatment uh, in the Ejeffer mutated population. So that means nowadays uh, it's not so easy uh, to identify uh, this population that might receive osimertinib first line. Uh, and probably uh, 
I would say osimertinib might become a standard of care in first line. Uh, do you think uh, we might expose uh, probably all the patients with osimertinib, or should we keep a place uh, in sequence of treatment for some patient uh, for which uh, we <coughs> might think uh, this patient will receive osimertinib in second line of treatment? Uh, you have any idea, Passi? It's a challenging question. Yeah, I, I think um, <clears throat> you know we're not smart enough to predict um, which patient who gets uh, gefitinib or latinib is going to get T790M and which one is not. Your <clears throat> sort of graph showing there the sequential approach. And so I like the uh, what you said earlier is the give your best drug first approach. And, uh, you know, you have a drug that can overcome the common resistance mechanism. You have a drug that can treat CNS metastases, um, well tolerated. I think that, for me, that, that is a very simple choice. I agree that, it, to me, it really suggests give your best drug first. The, to me, the Empower 150 data are also quite interesting because as we debate the NEJ09 trial and the potential of giving chemo up front and weighing the pros and cons of that, we need to weigh the lost opportunities of not giving chemo potentially with BEV and immunotherapy as a second treatment and having immunotherapy be effective in this way but not potentially nearly as effective as a single agent later. So you can't give chemo up front with your EGFR inhibitor and have that doublet be available as the first, you know, as a, a subsequent treatment uh, with or with BEV and, and uh, atezolizumab. I think we'll need to figure out about uh, how critical the BEV is, the fact that one arm shows a benefit that really wasn't seen with the other arm should lead us to not be too cavalier about just presuming that any chemo immunotherapy combination is going to be comparably effective. We'll need to see more data on this, but... I, uh, I think it's encouraging just to have uh, been f have the chance now to step back and, and reconsider our prior conclusion that immunotherapy just doesn't work for these patients. But besides that, I think you know, there has been a lot of hesitation or, or some resistance to uh, osimertinib up front in part because, oh, well, we don't have it available next. Well, obviously it's not an effective or available option for patients who don't develop T790M. So it's not, it, it, it's at best going to be available for 50 or 60% and probably less in the real world where people don't get tested sometimes for other reasons. Uh, but, uh, but at the same time, uh, this is a, a treatment that uh, if you don't give the osimertinib, you have patients who are at higher risk for brain metastases and may have may not be eligible for a lot of other things later. And uh, we've gone a decade or 15 years where we didn't have a subsequent therapy after EGFR and uh, uh, in terms of other targeted therapies, but still did meaningful things, that is, targeted uh, conventional chemotherapy, et cetera. We still have those things. We, we just seem to have uh, lost our way that... Uh, there are other treatment options after EGFR-directed therapies. I completely agree. It's not because you don't have currently uh, another different target therapy beyond osimertinib that we should not use the best treatment in first line. Otherwise, we, sh we have the same question. If you use osimertinib in second line, you don't have beyond 
other different specific treatments. So that means the question is, should we bring a benefit to use the best drug upfront in first line? And until now, it seems to be the case. So that's why it was exactly the same discussion between chemotherapy and adjuphatic eye first generation in first line few years ago, uh, and we all were agreed to use the best drug to be sure that 100% of the patient received the treatment. Uh, and whatever the trial, and it was the case in the FLORA trial, when you look uh, in the both harm, uh, and particularly in the standard of care, until now, we have around 17% that died before to receive any further line of treatment. Uh, so that means uh, we are in the range between 20 to 30% of the patient that never receive any further line of treatment. Uh, and after, you have the selection of the T7 ITM positivity or not. And you cannot predict, uh, you cannot write the scenario before which patient, when you have a prompt patient in first line, if we will develop or not the T7 ITM positivity, it's completely unpredictable. And even uh, if the patient progress, uh, some patient, uh, you cannot perform any tumor tissue biopsy. This is the case on the brain meds. Uh, some patient for which uh, you will look on circulating tumor DNA, but you might not capture the T7 ATM or circulating tumor DNA. You have the bone metastasis for which it might be an issue. So that's why it's really challenging. Uh, and it's not a game when we see the patient to say, okay, we will keep the sequence of treatment because you never know if you will be able to put the patient in the best scenario. If you are able to predict this, but until now we do not have any biomarker to predict uh, if the patient will go in this scenario, T7 ATM positivity, and if will not die or have unreversible toxicity uh, with the first line uh, uh, of adjuphatica I. My last question, probably passive, because you know a lot uh, about the mutation of resistance. So nowadays, and probably the future, is to know the mechanism of resistance with osimertinib. We have a lot of data when we use osimertinib in second line. I'm not sure we have currently the standard of care in this population, particularly for the C79S mutation. So might we expect to have different mechanisms of resistance if we use osimertinib in first line in comparison if we keep osimertinib in second line of treatment? So I, I would say that this is still a, a, a fairly uh, unknown area, um, and uh, uh, one of the one of the things that uh, we don't totally understand is what fraction of resistance to frontline osimertinib is mediated by an eGFR uh, mechanism, meaning a mutation versus not. Um, you mentioned C797S. When you see 797S in the context of T790M, so when you have three mutations, nothing works in that scenario. When you have uh, just an EGFR-activating mutation, exon 19 deletion, L858R, and develop C797S like you would perhaps with frontline osimertinib, there's at least preclinical evidence and a very limited clinical evidence that existing EGFR inhibitors like gefitinib should work in that situation. But the proof of principle or proof of concept is, is still missing from the frontline OSI-treated patients. Um, in, in the very limited analyses that were done from the phase one trial of osimertinib where there was a frontline cohort, there were a few C797S mutations seen. There were some meta-amplification seen, which we see in the T790M population of patients. So it may not be that they are fundamentally different, um, but the biggest question, I think, will be sort of the breakdown, EGFR-mediated versus non-EGFR-mediated, and I think that will come as we as a community uh, continue to study more patients who are treated with frontline osimertinib. We will have 
nice data coming from the FLORA trial. It will be presented at ESMO just to look on circulating tumor DNA beyond progression with osimertinib. So probably we might have some additional answer to the mechanism of escape. Uh, if we use osimertinib first line, I think this is quite uh, a, a major thing. Uh, and FLORA trial with circulating tumor DNA will bring some nice uh, and promising data. And so the last question for Jack. Uh, so that means tomorrow if you use osimertinib first line, uh, Probably if we want to push further, it might be combination. Uh, your combination. You mean beyond progression? Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, oh, before progression. What do you add to Osimer? What to add? Uh, yeah, that's... We might expect well, the next tape now. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, you could... If I've had patients with... Uh, and I have had one with a pretty subtle progression, I've added chemotherapy in that setting. Uh, you know, we, we also... Uh, didn't talk about here, but know about rebound progression or, f or uh, that, that you can have that flare reaction. And, and so uh, that, and we, we, oftentimes you'll have some relative progression, but still a lot less than you started with. So uh, this is a setting in which I would really consider adding chemotherapy. But nowadays, I would also consider, at least if there was an approval for Empower 150, I would consider that approach. Outside of that, uh, I think it's, uh, we maybe debate about chemo versus chemo immunotherapy, but I'm looking forward to getting a lot more data on this question now that we've walked back the overly simplistic and incorrect concept that patients with an EGFR mutation categorically can't and don't benefit from immunotherapy. So finally, chemotherapy is still important in this population. We still use chemotherapy and we will still use chemotherapy. I think this is something quite important and plat particularly with platinum salt. I think we should keep in mind to use with uh, platinum salt. Uh. So, Basi, probably you will conclude. Uh. Okay. Um, so, uh, we have uh, about 15 minutes left or so and uh, we'd uh, like to open the floor uh, for questions. Okay, let me uh, uh, read a question here that uh, comes from our audience, and, and, and this is the one that we uh, often see, actually. is So this is uh, uh, relating to a patient uh, who was uh, newly diagnosed. Uh, they have an EGFR mutation, and they have a pdl one expression greater than 50%. And so do you consider a combination of IO and TKI, or should you start with TKI? How, how, do, you, how do you weigh these two out uh, uh, when both are present? So I think that's a, a really important question. If this hadn't come up, I was going to interject with this case, and, and they do happen. Uh, but we have some limited data on this uh, that I think should give us pause. Uh, specifically, uh, Eddie Guerin and colleagues from UCLA did a small study where they were uh, starting patients on pembrolizumab if they had a known EGFR mutation and had high PDL1 as a kind of window of opportunity, and they intended to enroll 25 patients on that uh, study, but it closed early because in uh, their first 10 confirmed uh, EGFR mutation positive patients, they had no responses, but they also had two patients with an early death uh, in the first six months, which is not unprecedented, but is a real uh, concern and, and far from what we would expect to see in this population where we're seeing survivals 
uh, median survivals in the range of years. And one of the deaths was uh, with somebody who had received erlotinib subsequent to uh, pembrolizumab and then progressed and developed fatal pneumonitis, which again can happen, but it's a real concern and the limited available data suggests that uh, an interaction of some EGFR TKIs with immunotherapy may be uh, a particular danger, maybe particularly with osimertinib. But so I think we need to learn more, but the implication from this and why it's gotten a lot of attention for just being 10 patients was that it really underscores that uh, that uh, the EGFR-based therapy needs to be the higher priority here. I agree. It's quite difficult nowadays also because you... We had the uh, PDL1 immunohistochemistry before to have the EGFR status. Yeah. So that's why we might see that the patient is an adenocarcinoma PDL1 highly positive. And so that's why there is strong message to be sure that the patient is EGFR negative, HALC negative, before to start any immune treatment. Otherwise, you can start the immunotherapy uh, quite quickly because uh, you have uh, the, the, the answer with uh, immunostochemistry quite quick. Uh, and I completely agree we should take by cautious because if we start immune treatment, discover that the patient is EGFR mutated, it does not work, so we will start uh, an EGFR TKI, and you have potentially this toxicity. Don't forget that the half-life uh, of the PD-1 and PDL one is extremely prolonged, is more than six weeks. So the patient is still, even if you stop the PD-1, PDL one you still have in the blood the antibody. And when we see the toxicity with osimertinib, it was 38% in the Tatun trial pulmonary toxicity. So that means even if you stopped the immune treatment in first line, you start osimertinib, you might develop this type of toxicity. So that's why it's a strong message. Please don't start the uh, immune treatment before to have the panel gene testing. Yeah, I had a patient like this. I had a patient mm. like this right after ASCO, and we found out he was PDL1 high before ASCO, came back saying, wait, wait, let's make sure we get EGFR and other mutations back. He was actually EGFR mutation positive. No, no, and particularly in, uh, in the never smoker, or light smoker, we, we must have the molecular testing before to start any immune treatment. Huh? Yeah, and I, I think just to remind people that the actual regulatory approval for chemotherapy, immunotherapy in the frontline setting is for EGFR wild type and ALK wild type mm -hmm. patients. And so there is that, you know, uh, getting that information I think is, uh, uh, is, uh, uh, is important. There is a, a, another question here from the audience on, you know, thinking about lung cancer, EGFR mutant lung cancer, like we think about uh, uh, viral types of uh, uh, infections and things like that where we may combine agents or alternate agents to avert resistance. Uh, what, do you, what do you guys think of that strategy? Is there uh, any uh, thoughts of adapting those kinds of approaches for treatment of EGFR mutant or, or, or ALK-rearranged lung cancer, same principle? I think that the concept of uh, hitting it from different angles is provocative. I think that that, to me, is a part of the potential value of the NEJ009 approach, where we have seen some published data, and we'll see more during this meeting about uh, local ablative therapies for patients with uh, an EGFR mutation. Uh, we didn't talk about that here, and it's not as much about acquired resistance as even using it proactively for induced oligometastatic or oligoresidual disease that suggests that these patients may do extremely well as well. So I think the idea of 
uh, of hitting the disease from a few different angles uh, when there is a very low tumor burden may have merit. We're still, even though we've been looking at EGFR TKIs for uh, approaching now two decades, uh, clearly we're still learning a lot. And I think that there's a lot more to be learned about potential combinations and optimal sequencing that we really haven't tackled in the first 15 years of studies. I'm agree. I'm pro probably the, the future we need to have some uh, combination of treatment. We want to try to avoid uh, all this type of subclone of resistance and probably uh, I think it's, uh, this is what we have seen with chemotherapy and the uh, geophertic eye, and probably we might think about stereotaxic radiation on specific uh, small disease nodes. And so this is something I think uh, might increase the benefit and potentially the overall survival. And uh, we might have a limit of the treatment, only monotherapy, and so combination uh, will be probably something necessary upfront in first line. So David, here's a question that uh, uh, some comes up fairly often. You treat somebody uh, with... Uh, first line uh, a fatinib and uh, you're getting uh, serial CFDNA and you notice uh, the T790M rising. What, what's the, what do you think of the strategy of that, of monitoring for T790M and then switching to osimertinib at that time? This is something we do more and more. We do it, uh, we try to do it every two months at, uh, at the Institute. Uh, we don't know now if we have any benefit to anticipate. Uh, should we still monitor patient uh, according to racist criteria? Should we try to anticipate the emergency of the T790M positivity? Uh, we don't have the result. So I mean, uh, it's something purely exploratory. Uh, there is currently a trial in Europe, uh, which is an Apple trial ongoing, uh, that will try to answer to this question. Uh, for which you have one harm, uh, patient receive gefetinib, and you follow every two months by CT scan. And if you have tumor evolution, tissue biopsy, liquid biopsy, the patient is T7ATM positive, osimertinib, this is a standard of care. And the exploratory harm, uh, the patient also starts with gefetinib, and you follow patient uh, every four weeks by circulating tumor DNA. And if you see the emergency of the T7ATM positivity on the blood before to have any radiological progression, you change with osimertinib. And so this is something uh, that might bring us uh, uh, an answer. Do we bring a benefit uh, to try to anticipate molecular following of the patient, blood following, better than radiological following? of the patient. And, and, and remind us again, what is the primary endpoint of that trial? What is the primary endpoint in, in, the, in the, the percentage of PFS at 16 months? 16 months. So it's supposed to be the first generation, second generation. So we look at 16 months. Which harm do better? Is it to follow by uh, racist criteria or to follow by blood testing? Right. I, th I think that is an important trial because I really get at this question. It comes up actually quite often about, you know, now that we have great technologies to test from the blood, if we can de detect the resistance mechanism earlier, do we kind of go after and attack that clone and switch the drug at that point? Or do we wait for clinical progression? And I think this trial. Yes, will be and, very and generally, you, you can anticipate two or three months uh, before to have the radiological progression when you have the emergency of the C7ITM mutation on the blood. So, but it's 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 a major question. Yes. But I, I think that uh, it's important to underscore that's a situation where you have a a really strong choice waiting in the wings versus, you know, we have historically seen some people getting PET scans and. Uh, switching off of a well-tolerated therapy where the only change has been an SUV increase from 4.1 to 5.2, uh, 
and the, the size is not different. And I think we don't need to go looking for trouble. It'll find us. And I, I'm a little reluctant about uh, changing for, you know, we might make the distinction between uh, clinically significant and barely perceptible. A little different here when osimertinib would arguably be a strong first-line choice versus, um, you know, coming off of that to, to switch to uh, a different thing that may be less well-tolerated. Another uh, case here from the audience, uh, uh, 58-year-old male, PS1, never smoker, EGFR exon 19 deletion, and what EGFR inhibitor do you start with? I think this is getting at the question is, does the specific EGFR mutation, the deletion 19 or LA58R, should that dictate the choice of the EGFR inhibitor? I would say no. Uh, there was you know, some analysis of the Lux Lung 3 and 6 trial results pooled together or viewed independently that suggested maybe a particular benefit with a fat nib in uh, the Exxon 19s, but that wasn't seen as a significant factor in the Lux Lung 7 trial. Uh, I, I would say that that is not a clinically significant factor, and so I would not treat a patient differently whether they have Exxon 19 or Exxon 21 activating mutation, and these days I would favor osimertinib in either case. Completely agree. We, we should forget the fact to make any choice according to the type of deletion. We know that generally patients with deletion 19 have better response with adjuphatic eye in comparison to exon 21, but this is the case for all the drugs. So afatinib do not work better for this type of deletion. I'm completely agree. We should forget this, uh, this point. Mm. A, a question from the audience, uh, again, uh, related to imaging. Uh, you talked a little bit about uh, uh, what you guys, David, what you do. And the question relates, if you use osimertinib up front, uh, is there still value to routine uh, brain imaging if it's an effective agent in the CNS? Or do you just dictate it based on symptoms? To my point of view, I will still look at the brain because uh, clearly it's, uh, it's a major drug for the brain, particularly the patient, again, with no brain medicine. But in some patients, they might develop, you never know, they, they might still develop some brain meds, and I prefer to know and to have an early intervention with stereotaxic irradiation. So I try to still follow patients with a brain imaging. I, I do too, and I would just say I'm not looking every three months, but I would, uh, I'd be inclined to look at least like annually, even if I'm confident about the, uh, the systemic therapy. I think it's worth surveilling and intervening before a patient has seizures as they're presenting symptom. Okay, I think we're uh, uh, at the end here. Thank you again uh, for coming uh, and uh, have a great evening. Thank you for participating in this peer CME educational activity. To obtain your CME certificate, complete the required post-test and evaluation form.